Awesome. Hey, glad to have you in the house of God uh, with us this morning. We know that there's a lot of places uh, you could be, and, and so we are truly honored that you would be joining us uh, this morning. Hey, one thing we want to put on your radar is coming up at the end of this month, uh, we're going to be with Dr. Michael Maiden here for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, of uh, Pursuit uh, Revival Extended Services. And so we hope you can join us. That's going to be a busy weekend uh, for us uh, here. We got Maiden with us Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, and then Sunday night is uh, Halloween. We're hosting a trunk or treat here for the community, and then Monday night's Pursuit Night. So it's going to be a long weekend here in the house of God, but we hope you'll consider joining us. God's really doing some uh, incredible things. And uh, we're just uh, excited to be a part. You know, one of the things I'm constantly amazed uh, at and by is hearing people's stories of how they met Jesus. And, and some of us have a little bit more of a traditional upbringing. Like you, you might not even remember or identify with a date when you gave your heart to God because you just grew up in church. And you was born in church. You might have been conceived in church. You just, you've been a church person <laughs> your whole life. I didn't mean, I, you know what I meant. The idea of you was conceived in church, not the. Well, good night. I'll see you next week. You know, I'm just. Uh, Y'all know what I meant. <laughs> That's some first Corinthian stuff up in there. I'm saying so anyways, but I love talking to people who didn't grow up in church. Because they always remember a time, a date, and a place where Jesus met them. Took them up out of the miry clay, put their feet on a firm foundation, saved them, redeemed them, forgave them. It's powerful. And I'm just amazed at how creative God is. And so my conviction in this season, was we're going we're, we're to become all things to all men that we might win some. And we still know that 2,000 years later, it's still the goodness and the kindness of God that leads men unto repentance and it's just incredible to me how God uses the circumstances of life to guide people back home. And we're seeing that in this community. And I trust many of you have seen that in your family and in your spheres of influence. That God is doing an incredible work in the Northwest. And I don't know if you feel this, but I feel this in my heart. That the church, not just this church, but the church, the capital C church, we are in a time of choosing. And it reminds me of what Joshua told the Israelites as soon as they entered into the promised land. It said, choose ye this day whom you will serve. Either you will serve the God uh, 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 of our forefathers, and in doing so you will have life, or you will serve other gods, lowercase g, and you will reap death. But choose this day. And then Joshua follows it up with this declaration. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's a lot of ways that you can go, and there's a lot of ideologies and philosophies that you can subscribe to, and there's a lot of proclivities and patterns that you could get involved with, but it's for me and my house, in this house, we're going to serve the Lord. Because frankly, we don't have any other option. Only this Jesus has the words of life. And he invites us into divine partnership in this season as co-laborers and co-heirs. You're not just a servant of God, you're a friend of God. And we know that because Jesus tells his disciples this, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends because friends know the master's business. You have been invited into divine friendship with the creator of the universe who doesn't need your help, but likes to invite you anyways. That's really good news. 
God doesn't invite you into partnership and in planning because, you know, he needs your advice or input. He's not looking for a consultant. He's really good at building his church, but what he's really longing after is friendship and relationship. And we've been invited into this divine friendship with God by which you and I have the opportunity to make a dent on history here in the Northwest. You were born for such a time as this. It proves that not only does God have a sense of humor, but his sustaining power and grace is of real effect in your life. And the same God who begun your journey is going to be faithful to finish your journey. And if you're still breathing as of today, that means your journey is not yet over. And so we're going to continue to encourage you, continue to add our faith one to, one to another and believe that our best days are, are not behind us, uh, but, uh, but ahead of us. The world is filled with so much bad news and fake news and fearful news that just every once in a while, you got to get in the house of God or around the people of God and hear the good news. You know, the Bible is not good advice. It's good news. It's the proclamation that Jesus is here, and because Jesus is here, everything changes. We're not arguing to try to get people to understand that possibly, maybe, from our perspective, Jesus is here. Scripture is not sharing its truth, but then you have your truth, and I have my truth, and it's kind of all equal truth, so just choose your own adventure and pick whatever theology you want. No, the Scripture is an announcement that cannot be argued away. It cannot be reasoned away. It is not threatened by principalities and powers or other false religions. Jesus is here, and when Jesus is here, friend, everything changes. <laughs> Jesus is here. That's why Jesus asked his disciples this question, who do men say that I am? And then he follows up with, but who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Can I tell you, your eternity hangs on the answer to that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, he's a great teacher. No, but he's more than that. Well, he was a great healer. Yes, but he was more than that. Well, he had great philosophy. I agree, but he was more than that. Well, he was a prophet. Yes, but he was more than that. And when Peter responded to Jesus, you are the son of the living God, it's like all of heaven responds. Heaven and earth did not, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father above and upon that rock, I will build my church. The church, 2,000 years later, still rests on the foundation of that revelation. Jesus is Lord. And where Jesus is Lord, everything changes. Culture is cool with Jesus until you make him Lord. In fact, Jesus is more popular in culture, art, entertainment, and fashion today than I think he has been in the last 100 or 200 years in the West. It's very popular to invoke the name of Jesus, the art of Jesus, the concepts of Jesus, the principles of Jesus, as long as you don't dare say that there is only one way, there is only one truth, there is only one door, and his name is Jesus. As soon as you make that claim, you're not just saying Jesus is Savior, you're saying Jesus is Lord. And we declare in the Northwest, Jesus is not one of many ways, he is the way. He is not one of many truths, he is the truth. He is not one of many lives, he is the life. He is the door by which all of us enter in through. Scripture says broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. But this Jesus offers us incredible life. I want to tell you uh, this morning the story of Jesus from a very familiar passage of Scripture, Matthew 2. Normally we read Matthew 2 during the Christmas season uh, because it's reflective of the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus was such a transformational event that it literally split history. The birth of Jesus was not accidental. It was not ancillary. 
Jesus was sent in the fullness of time to fulfill all righteousness. And in doing so, bridged the gap between God and man that sin had created. In Matthew 2, not only does it focus on a person, but it focuses on a place. And this morning, I want to talk about the place of Bethlehem and what it communicates to our church in the year of our Lord, 2021. Watch what Matthew 2 says, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he, he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And we had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Watch, Bethlehem first comes to prominence in the Old Testament. It's the place where Naomi and Ruth settle. Bethlehem is the place that Ruth meets Boaz at the threshing floor. They get married and have a child named Obed. Obed gets married and has a child named Jesse. Jesse gets married and has a child named David, and David becomes the king of Israel. And in fact, 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Micah prophesies that a savior will be born out of Bethlehem, and he will rule over all of Israel. 700 years before Jesus arrives. Conservative estimates tell us that there are over 350 unique and individual prophecies that the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus fulfills. Over 350. In fact, there's only 12 chapters, only 12 chapters in the entire New Testament that don't include an Old Testament reference. Because scripture is proving to us this point, that which the prophets have spoken about has now arrived. Jesus and his kingdom, his rule and his rulership is now here for you and I. Watch, watch. The probability that Jesus would have even fulfilled 48 of these prophetic words is literally one in 10 with 157 zeros following it. And conservatively, Jesus fulfilled 350. Which tells me this, there aren't any accidents from God's perspective. There is prophecy and there is fulfillment. There is intention and there is action. There is a God who begins a journey and finishes a journey and he's not done yet. There are accidents from God's perspective. Oftentimes there's accidents from ours. But can I tell you even the fact that you're alive today sitting in this room, mathematicians would tell us that that's a one in 400 trillion chance. And it's interesting that we're raising a generation, telling them that they're here by accident and then wondering why they live without purpose. No, you're not an accident. No, I affirm a created order. No, I affirm that God in heaven in six days built the heavens and the earth, breathed life into man, and on the seventh day took a day off just to show off. Not because he was tired, but because he wanted to establish the principle of rest. No, you're here on purpose 
with purpose. No, you're not the resort result of some primordial ooze, some big accident in the universe. Well, it's so confusing, and we've got to capitulate to science. Science is not God. Jesus is God. And I'm going to affirm what Scripture teaches about how we got here and where we're going. Well, I think we just evolved out of mo- you. You can evolve out of whatever you want. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. No, we're going to believe in the intrinsic value that rests on every individual because they're made in the image of God. No, that's why we affirm and value the virtue and, 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 and the value and the importance of humanity. That's why we value things like innocent human life. That's why we value things like individual rights because government doesn't grant you rights. They simply protect the rights that are already granted to you on behalf of the fact that you're made in God's image. We have this high value for life because we understand where we came from, whose image we're in, and also where we're going. Oh, you're not here by accident. You're here on purpose. Geographic places are of significance to God. Nothing is random. Nothing is by happenstance. You are here today fulfilling words that people have had about this region for 100 years. In fact, if you were to visit Bethlehem today... You would see a church that was constructed in the early 4th century that today is managed by the Greek Orthodox. And it represents one of the most traveled to tourist destinations in the world. People from around the world come to view what's called the Church of the Nativity. Because it's still an honored place in our history today. But can I tell you what separates us as believers from those who are just impressed by world history is that this isn't just a story in a book. It's a person whose spirit is alive inside each and every one of us, a God who still commands the worship of the nations, the one who is still the desire of all men, the one who is worshiped by angels and elders in heaven. This Jesus is not just a moment in history, but the person who defines all of history history. People and places are significant to the kingdom of God. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, he determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the, when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. Till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They fell down, they worshipped him. When they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay, so the three wise men are the original essential oil salesmen, okay? (laughs) And they're bringing their gifts, and they're laying it at the feet of Jesus, Not because Jesus had any practical use for gold, frankincense, or myrrh, but because it represented a heart attitude and a position of honor. Do you know why you tithe on Sunday mornings? Not because God's kingdom is incumbent on your financial generosity, but because when you give, it is a sign of honoring and preferring God's kingdom over yours. God will build his church. You have the opportunity to partner with it and in doing so receive a blessing. But even if you walk in disobedience, God will still build his church. It'll just mean that you miss out on your blessing. Jesus had no practical need for gold, frankincense, or myrrh. But the wise men offer it 
as a sign of honor and worship to the newborn baby king. A few weeks ago, I was with my seven-year-old here in, 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 in the green room, and, uh, and we had a special speaker in town, and, and uh, he took out his wallet, and he gave Matthew, our seven-year-old, $10. And Matthew was very impressed with these $10. He thought to himself, I could buy the whole world, and I could buy whatever I want, and I've got these 10 these $10. And he kind of stood there quiet for a minute. And so I said, Matthew, I said, what do we say? Hoping and anticipating that he would say, thank you. <laughs> and he holds up the $10 and he proudly proclaims, I'm rich. <laughs> and then I said, I said, and what else do we say? He said, thank you. I go, man, whose child is this? But anyways, he, he, I think sometimes, though, that's how we treat the gifts that we receive from God. Like it's about insulating our own importance. I look at how talented I am. I'm rich. No, it's talent on loan from God that you become a steward of here on earth. Not to pad your own resume, but to be a blessing and an honor to somebody else. And one of the primary ways that we give glory to God is by taking our gifting, our talent, our treasure, and laying it at his feet. And what we're seeing unfold here in the narrative of Matthew 2 is the writers of the New Testament helping modern-day Jews connect that Christ is, in fact, the messianic fulfillment of all of these individual Old Testament prophecies, even the fact that wise men have come to seek him and to lay treasures at his feet. They were divinely warned in a dream not to return to Herod. When Herod saw that he was deceived, he was exceedingly angry, and he put an edict in place that the death of all of the male children would happen in Bethlehem and all of its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. We're going to focus just for a moment this morning on this word, Bethlehem. We sing about it, especially around Christmas. Some of you have had the privilege of visiting this place, as have I. But when you actually break out the word Bethlehem, it comes from two Hebrew ideas that I'll share with you this morning. And literally, the, the word Bethlehem translates to these two Hebrew ideas, these two Hebrew words, house of bread and house of war. I want you to see this. Jesus was born in the house of bread and in doing so has become our living bread. Jesus was born in the house of war and in doing so has become a triumphant king. And the church today, standing on the finished side of Christ's sacrifice, also emulates these cultural characteristics and these spiritual principles. This church is a house of bread, and it's been called to be a house of war. I want you to watch the analogies that the New Testament writers use to talk about church 1 Peter 2 and 5, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Matthew 21, my house shall be called a house of prayer. 1 Peter 4, judgment begins in the house of God. Luke 2, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Psalms 122, let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalms 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. There's a reason this house language is used to describe church. Because everyone has a house by which they develop friendships, network, community, culture, and environment. See, for some people, their house is the bar. For others, their house is the sports stadium. For some, their house is their workplace. For others, their house is the classroom. But for, but for believers, 
Our house is the church because our home is in Christ. And understanding the type of home we are in is imperative for the days that are ahead. We have bread because we've been called to war. Now watch what scripture says is bread. It says the words of God are bread in Matthew 4. For man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. In Matthew 15, Jesus says that healing is the children's bread. In 2 Corinthians 9, the apostle Paul says resource from God is as bread. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. In John 6, 51, Jesus self-declares, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and whoever eats this bread will live forever. When we think about Jesus being born in the house of bread, when we think about this church in a similar fashion being a house of bread, what we're saying is we're a house that honors scripture, we're a house that honors presence, we're a house that honors resource, we're a house that honors the centrality of who Christ is, we're a house that honors development, we are a house that honors the living bread that comes from heaven that by when we eat it, we live forever. We're a house of bread, not a house of performance, not not a house of showing off, not, not a house of self-promotion. No, we are a house of, of bread. But the reason why you eat is for the activity that lies ahead. And some people sell themselves short on the imperative of the gospel because they only make it about what they receive instead of what they activate through what they've received. I need more bread. No, we live in the information age. You know what you have access to today? You have access to the best communicators in the world, the best preachers in the world, the best worship in the world. You have access to more books today than our forefathers could have even imagined. We live in the information age. We are over-informed and we are under-activated. I just need more bread. But what did you do the last time you ate? No, I just need more. I just, I, I just need one more principle. I just need one more teaching. I just need one more revelation. I just need, I just need, I just need. And so we have inverted the gospel to make it about what we need instead of our responsibility to eat bread and then do with it what Christ commands. Not only are we a house of bread, but we are also a house of, of war. You eat to retain energy. You eat to get recharged. You eat to be fed and grown and developed and mature in the ways of the Lord. But don't sell yourself short. The gospel is not a test to determine your level of information. It's an invitation into partnership with God to see his kingdom expand in the world around us. And so we overly inform, we underly activate and then we make it everybody else's responsibility to do the work of the ministry for us. It's not just that healing is bread, scripture is bread, resources is bread, development is bread, presence is bread. But watch the things that scripture says is war. It says prayer is warfare. It says healing is warfare, breakthrough is war, deliverance is war, commitment is war, consistency is war. You know why? Because these things stand in opposition to our fleshly desires. The Bible says the carnal mind is an enemy of God. The wisdom of man is an enemy of God. Friendship with the world is an enemy of God. It doesn't say that God dislikes these things. It says that they are literally standing in opposition. They are completely antithetical to the narrative and the ethic of the kingdom of God. They stand in opposition to his principles in the world around us. Watch what the prophets say, Jeremiah 51. You are my war club, my weapon for battle. With you I shatter nations. With you I destroy kingdoms. Joel 3, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare 
for war. Deuteronomy 20 and 4, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Exodus 15, the Lord is a man of war. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. Isaiah 42, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. Isaiah 49, for I will contend with him who contends with you. Psalms 144, praise be to the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. No, you were created for bread and you were created for war. And you eat because of the mission and the task that lays ahead so that you will not falter in your hour of trial and in your hour of testing. So that if you've done everything to stand, you can continue to stand. And so often, I think, in kingdom living, we're given to opposite ends of the spiritual spectrum. We're given to these extremes. It's either all about warfare, like we're just constantly fighting. Do you know that you don't have to attend every fight you're invited to? In fact, it's really dumb to do so. Because all you'll do is wear yourself out and exhaust yourself out. Scripture says this, fight the good fight. It doesn't say fight every fight. It says fight the good fight. There are some fights that are really good for you to fight, and you should. This church is in the midst of a battle here in, 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 in this region and with different political and governmental establishment. I don't try to fight every fight, but there are some that are big enough, bold enough, brave enough that require some people of faith to stand up. But if you spend your time and energy trying to fight every single battle instead of using the wisdom from the Lord on which ones you're going to engage in, all you'll be is an exhausted Christian. But I think more often in the church... Instead of being given to the extreme of constant warfare, we're given to the extreme of constant bread. I'm a consumer and the church exists to feed me and to fill me and to bathe me and to burp me and to change me. And I'll be back next Sunday for those same activities. No, but we're training you up in the way that you should go, that you would never depart from it. Why? Because you were created for bread so that you could be prepared for battle. We need people to fight for the right things here in this community and in our culture. And for you and me, we're a part of a developmental spiritual community by which oftentimes you feel the pull and the expectation to not just be something, but to do something. Watch, when you understand the purpose for which the house was constructed, it helps you take your rightful place as a member of the family. How disappointed would you be if you went home today and booked a vacation with your significant other and you booked a cruise or what you thought was a cruise and you got your start date and you passed your COVID test and you go down to the port of Seattle and you pack your bags and you get ready to board a cruise ship only to get on the ship and find out that it's not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. And you're actually not going to Hawaii, you're going to Guam to serve on the naval base. And it's not a five-star restaurant, it's a cafeteria. And if you're hungry, you better eat. And you got to be up at 6 a.m. for exercises. And you've got a job to do. And one day you're manning the guns, and the next day you're mopping the floors. And you you think to yourself, man, I thought I was going to be sitting by a hot tub and ordering off of a menu, and everybody was going to cater to my needs. And I'm so disappointed because what I expected is different than what I'm experiencing. Can I tell you, people have that experience all the time in church. Because you think you're coming to a cruise ship, but actually this is a battleship. It doesn't exist to insulate your comfort. I didn't like worship. That's okay. We weren't worshiping you. (laughs) 
We have made ourselves the center of the gospel. But the center of the gospel is not self-fulfillment, it's self-denial. For unless a man deny himself and follow me and pick up his cross, he cannot be my disciple. So we're helping a community reimagine what it looks like to place Jesus at the center of who we are. This isn't a cruise ship, it's a battleship. But if you come expecting the amenities of a cruise ship, it will always cause conflict with people who are prepared for war. I think the problem in the West is that the church has been on a cruise ship while the culture has been headed to hell. No, we're not cruising anymore. No, prepare yourself. No, we are at war. No, not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. I don't think the enemy's threatened by dead churches. I just don't. I don't think he's threatened by dead Christians. But as soon as an individual goes, nah, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to say something, I'm going to be something, I'm going to do something. No, we're going to come against some of these principalities and power. No, we're going to stand against some of this darkness. No, we're not just going to hold ground, we're going to take ground. No, we're not just going to be a neutral, we're going to shift into drive. No, we're not just going to be victims of the narrative around us, we're going to do something to change it. No, we're not just going to complain about how the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Come on, we're going to run a rescue shop within a yard of the gates of hell. We're going to do something in this community. All of a sudden, the enemy starts to get rattled. And can I tell you? In your life, I think the enemy will leave you alone as long as you live a nice, little, contained Christian faith. When all of a sudden you wake up to this initiative of war, maybe for the first time in your Christian development, you're swimming upstream instead of down. This isn't the love boat. Hopefully it's not Gilligan's Island either. But it is a battleship, and guess what? You got a job to do. You got a job to do. No, I, I need you manning the cannons. I, I need somebody else sweeping the floors. No, I, I need folks to show up on time. No, no, we gotta be able to receive instruction and act accordingly. No, because this isn't what we thought it was, it's what Christ declares it to be. And that's why when Jesus responds to Peter, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Why? Because you're on offense, not defense. Now watch what happens. If you expect this place to be a cruise ship instead of a battleship, you'll be constantly disappointed. If you expect this place to be a rest home instead of a development center, you'll be continually disappointed. If you expect this place to be a safe church instead of an active church, you'll be constantly disappointed. But I think the primary way that we dishonor the Lord's table is by misunderstanding the Lord's house. When Jesus flips tables in the New Testament, remember that? I love all the Christians who say things like, what would Jesus do? Well, sometimes he flipped tables. Some of us have been sitting at tables that Jesus has been trying to flip. And we've misunderstood the purpose of the Lord's house. Jesus is correcting the narrative. He says, my house will be called a house of, and you have made it a den of thieves. He's helping correct the narrative. He's saying what you thought this house was is not actually what this house is. This house is a house of of prayer. 
And the reason this house was built was for the purpose of bread and war, meaning just about everything we do is ultimately flavored by those two ingredients. Remember, friend, the body doesn't exist for bones. It exists for life. Now, the bones are a necessary piece, but the structure isn't the purpose. It's what facilitates the purpose. And for us, as we consider our lives in light of our kingdom responsibility, we understand that the church serves as a structure that helps facilitate the life and the even more abundant life that Christ gives us. But sometimes people become enamored by the wineskin without recognizing that they don't have any wine. The wineskin has purpose because of what it holds. And the church as an organization has purpose because of what it holds. And for you and, and, and for me, we are a part of new wine being poured out in a new way as God is constructing a new wineskin as we are continuing to follow, not perfectly, but hopefully faithfully, the upward call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. But I would not be doing my due diligence as a pastor unless I helped you understand what you're about to walk into. I saw a story the other day of a couple that had been dating for a season and they decided to invite their friends to a costume party. And they said, wear your wackiest costumes that you can. We're gonna just be funny and just whatever. And when the guests arrived, the couple announced that it wasn't actually a costume party, it was their wedding. And they just thought it'd be funny to take a bunch of ridiculous pictures of their friends dressed up for the wrong occasion. <laughs> As a pastor, one of my jobs is to help you understand why this thing exists so that you don't show up dressed as a clown. No, this isn't a circus, it's a battleship. No, we got clowns, but not in here. No, this isn't like in an entertainment venue. I know we got lights and sound and mics, and that's just part of what we do, but this isn't a stage, it's an altar. But sometimes in an effort to cast a really wide net, we just, we're not really clear about exactly what we're building. And then we have a bunch of Christians show up and they're salty because they have unmet expectations. I thought it was a circus, so I dressed up like a clown. I thought it was a cruise ship, so I dressed up for vacation. No, it's a battleship and we're preparing you for war because there are kingdoms that are in conflict. And that's what God is preparing for us in this season. Here's what I've found. The character of the house ultimately becomes the culture of the people. The longer you stay in any environment, the more you find yourself acclimated to your surroundings. I can always tell when people are new at the pursuit and they're coming out of what I would call a non-charismatic environment because in worship, they look like this. But like two weeks in, I start to notice a little life in the wrists, you know, just a little. It's like a, we call that Jehovah Sneaky. It's just a little sneak. It's a little, I'm like, oh, they move, they move. 
He'd give it another month and all of a sudden it's moving a little bit more. And come two, three months in this environment, all of a sudden people are moving quite a bit. What I found is that any house you submit yourself to, ultimately you begin to behave in accordance with because the culture of the house becomes the character of your life. And I want you to know you were born for this. You were not born for passive, dead Christianity. You were born for bread and you were born for war. I don't feel bad for inviting people to be a part of this thing. I don't, I don't. When we first planted the church, I said really dumb things like, well, I don't care where you go. And you know, if you go somewhere else, I don't really want you to come here. No, it's stupid, it's stupid. No, I believe in this thing. It doesn't mean I don't believe in what other folks are doing, but I really believe in this thing because I think we're training people in this hour to rise up with purpose, like Esther, who said, could it be that I was born for such a time as this? You were made for this. Now I know the world is losing its mind and I know we got COVID and pandemic and politicians and all sorts of structures and strategies and things that are happening that just absolutely blow our minds, but you were made for this. You were made to be in a house with fresh bread. Come on, you ever walk into a restaurant, you smell fresh bread? Not old bread, not stale bread, not yesteryear's bread, not the last movement's bread, not breadsticks that have been in the freezer for 10 years. Fresh bread. You, you ever walk into a restaurant, you smell fresh bread, and the scent fills the house, and you know right away, you start to get a little hungry and a little thirsty, and it's just, it's fresh bread. Oh, that's this house. You ever walk into an environment and you just feel like, I, I don't know who I'm gonna fight, but I'll fight someone. I don't know what we're gonna tear down, but I'll tear it down now. I don't know what we're gonna build, but give me the blueprint, sign me up. What is there to do? I've gotta do, I've gotta be a part, I've gotta see, I've got, we've gotta go. The, the world is way, we owe the world and what are we gonna do? The reason why you feel that way in this house is because we are a house of bread and we are a house of war. And that's what I'm inviting you into. That's what I'm inviting you. That's what you've been signed up for. It's not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. It's not an olive garden with stale bread. It's fresh bread. It's a fresh invitation for you to taste and see that the Lord is good and then watch and then do something about it. Instead of just getting fed and refed week after week. Instead, to become active and living and growing, developing, mature in the things of the Lord. Come on, would you stay with me as we close?